0: begin what will likely be a multi-sermon series. It's actually kind of a series within the whole Gospel of John, because this chapter is such a a pinnacle, not only of the Gospel of John, but of the whole Bible, and the pinnacle of the chapter is John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. we've been observing that mountain peak from a distance so that we get the whole scope of the salvation that is provided in Jesus Christ. And we see Nicodemus at the base of that mountain. Um, that mountain which is so majestic and so um In in such sharp relief and contrast. That it is impossible to climb. There is only one way. In order to enter into the kingdom of God. And we've learned that that is to be born again. To have a completely new nature. And to be brought and drawn to God. Not by any act of our own will. But by his sovereign grace. But we're going to continue. In our study of John chapter 3, and we will still stop short of getting to verse 16. We're going to go up to verse 15 today. Um, And I hope that uh, you will be blessed, as I have been blessed in studying this. Let's read from John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. We'll reread the passage we looked at yesterday. John chapter 3, 1 through 15. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We'll stop there. So last week we saw that Nicodemus is quite aware that all of his religious practice and his, um, his pharisaical wisdom, everything that he has, he comes to Jesus because he knows he is lacking. And Jesus, looking right into his heart, knows the question that Nicodemus is afraid to ask. How does a person get into heaven? How does a person see the kingdom of God? How does a person enter? And Jesus, knowing his heart, says, unless you are born again, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And of course, this really confuses Nicodemus. And he asks questions that he knows sound silly. Uh, What do you mean? Can I enter again a second time into my mother's womb? And Jesus has to go on to explain a a spiritual truth that everyone who is in fellowship with God and everyone who knows God should understand this, but Nicodemus doesn't because of his dead religion, his dead spirituality. He knows a lot. He knows the scriptures, but he does not understand he has no light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So this is what we have seen Um, thus far in this interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus Um, and we've also seen the fact that the Holy Spirit compared to the wind is very very significant the wind is the wind blows where it pleases being born of the Spirit is not a matter of us hunting down the right way to be born again it is a matter of the Spirit finding us. And the spirit blows where he wishes. The The wind blows where it wishes. And then there is an effect. The human heart is radically changed, redirected by the wind. We see the effects of the wind, even though we do not see the wind actually um, the wind itself. Um, Nicodemus is perhaps an example of How we see the effects of the wind, but we don't know exactly what's going on. Because there is no recorded radical conversion experience of Nicodemus. And yet later on, it's matter-of-factly stated that he's a disciple. The word of God, somewhere along the line, and the teaching of Jesus, got to Nicodemus. And he believed and he received... What he was prior, prior to that, he had been incapable of receiving. And what made the difference for Nicodemus and for everyone who comes to God through faith is an encounter with Jesus, looking upon the Son of God upon the cross in the same way that those who were dying in the desert from the bite of serpents looked upon that serpent and were saved. So we're going to consider uh, today four aspects of this, this whole... In fact, I guess you could say that we are going to preach the gospel in these four points. First of all, we're going... The crisis that I just described to you, this crisis that Nicodemus needs to be born again and he's not. The crisis is going to be restated and clarified. So we understand exactly what it means... To not be born again. Alright, and then we're going to look at the Christ revealed. How Jesus says that he descended from heaven. And that he has already ascended and he has descended. And he is the one who brings and who is the truth. Then we're going to look at the cross represented. As a son of man is lifted up. The serpent was lifted up on a pole. The son of man was lifted up upon a cross. And there was healing and there was life in both situations. And finally, we're going to look at the curse reversed and how that curse of the cross, that curse of death, the sting of death, is reversed and in its place, in the place of everlasting death, everlasting separation from God, there is everlasting life. So let's look first at the crisis, the crisis restated. Of course, the crisis is that Nicodemus is outside the kingdom of God and he, at this point, has no way to get in. Nicodemus asks him what Jesus says, he, he, he explains to him about the new birth, about being born again, about the Holy Spirit, and Nicodemus is completely baffled by it because it is so foreign. To anything that he has heard. And anything that he understands. He understands. That those who. Keep the law. Will live by the law. But that's. What he's seeing as the way of salvation. Being a good Pharisee. Being a good Jew. Keeping the laws of God. And hoping that in there is some. Grace. So that even though he knows his own law-keeping is imperfect, that God will somehow bring him in. And this is why he comes to Jesus to get this key that he thinks he's missing. And Jesus turns it all upside down and says, no, no, no. You can't start with anything that you've done. You can't start with any of your righteousness. You have got to die and be born again. So this is the crisis, and it is a crisis that is manifest in at least three areas. And this is true of everyone who does not know Jesus, who is not uh, regenerated, who is not born again through faith in in Jesus Christ. So let's look at the uh, different ways. First of all, Jesus says to him, Are you a teacher in Israel, and you do not understand these things? You don't understand about the Holy Spirit. You don't understand about uh, what Ezekiel clearly taught about God taking out the heart of stone and in his place putting a heart of flesh that loves the Lord and that obeys the Lord and keeps his commandments and how he washes away all sin. The new birth is clearly taught in the Old Testament and Nicodemus has missed it. He says, are you a teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand? Did you know that Israel was designated by God and chosen by God to be a light to the nations? Now you have Nicodemus, who is one of the Pharisees. And Jesus calls him the teacher of the Jews. So really he's looking at Nicodemus as a representative of the light of... That is given to the nation that is to be a light. And Nicodemus is completely clueless. Now I don't think that he's rebuking Nicodemus. For not understanding these things. Because Nicodemus is the same as any other man. Any other woman. I'm using that man in the generic sense. Anyone who does not understand and know Jesus Christ. So there are three ways that Nicodemus is, in, is deficient. He does not understand. The word there is, the Greek word is gnoskes, which means to know or to perceive. So he does not perceive. He, can, he does not um, understand anything of what Jesus has just told him. And you, you'll see how, how, you'll see how true that is in a moment. And then the second thing that he is deficient in is that he cannot, or he does not receive. Now, if you, I know that you don't read Greek, most of you, and I don't read it, certainly not well. But I do know this in verse. Um, let's see. Let me find my where I, my place here. In verse eleven. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So the second thing that Nicodemus cannot do and does not do is receive the testimony. Now this is the testimony of God, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. But what I'd like you to notice is the the way that you think that Nick, that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus alone this whole time, but in Greek there's another use of the word, another uh, another form of the word "you" that we don't really have in Canada. Although some some people who are not trained very well, when they're talking to more than one person, they'll say "use," and that's actually exactly the way the Greek works. Or in the South they'll say "y'all," all y'all. Okay. This is Jesus changes the first time he speaks to Nicodemus. You're a teacher and you don't understand. Now he turns it to include everyone that Nicodemus represents, which includes the Pharisees and which includes Israel. And this is what he says. Um, pardon me. We bear witness to what we've seen, but you all do not receive our testimony. This is an indictment. This is the state of humanity. Because the Jews are given light. Jews are given, as Paul says, the oracles of God. They're given the very words that proclaim Jesus Christ. They had the whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the poetic writings. They had it all. And yet they did not receive. The testimony had been there all along. And then the testimony was magnified and multiplied. But Jesus, the word, became flesh. And came into the world and declared the truth. And he's in the process even now of declaring the truth of the new birth and the kingdom of God. So they don't understand and secondly Nicodemus and all people do not receive their testimony the word receive is in Greek it's lambanete which means to take hold of or accept it can be a, it can be a very um, a very drastic thing but it's the idea of grabbing onto or clutching onto taking so they don't understand and because they don't understand, they're not motivated to receive the truth that's brought to them now Jesus has been teaching true things and it seems like he's been bending over backwards to get Nicodemus to be able to see to understand spiritual truth by using physical analogies and i, I don't think it takes Jesus by surprise that Jesus that Nicodemus doesn't understand I don't think we should be surprised when we think we have the clearest, most uh, thought-provoking analogy to present the gospel to someone. We've got all the good examples laid out and all the good illustrations. And we proclaim this to someone. And they're glazed over. They look like a deer in the headlights. And none of it's sinking in. There is something that is more than just a good argument or a good presentation to a person being born again. There is no surefire way to share the gospel so that it saves because that part is the work of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, the fact is, Nicodemus and the whole nation, or at least the, the external nation of the Jews, And the Jewish leadership, and by extension, the whole world, did not receive Jesus. He came to his own, it says in John 1, verse 11. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. So at this point, Nicodemus is an example. He is one of those people. Do you remember what the next verse, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as what? Received him. To them he gave the right become the children of God even to those who believe on his name so what Jesus is doing is he's starting where Nicodemus is and in a moment he's going to give him kind of a key to break through all this fog and all this unbelief and all this uncertainty maybe even the arrogance that keeps Jesus at a distance and not wanting to receive him And there's a third way that Nicodemus is is deficient. In verse... Actually, I don't even have the verse written down here. It says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So, he doesn't understand or perceive. He doesn't perceive. He doesn't receive. And he doesn't believe. That is the natural de facto position of the human heart until the Lord gives us a new heart. Now, the word for believe is pistuete, which means uh, having faith in, pistuete, I think, is a better way to say it. Having faith in a person or a thing. Um, Having a faith, as we we know, has an object. It isn't faith in faith. It isn't faith in, in your belief to believe something. It's faith in someone who has really done something. And implicit trust in that person. So he says, uh, I have told you earthly things and you don't believe. How are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, Nicodemus, he's pressing Jesus for a better example, a better illustration so that he will understand. And so that he'll be able to grasp what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying... That train isn't going anywhere. I can't even—I can't even tell you earthly metaphors in, in such a way you'll understand. You will understand. Um, in, in essence, he's saying, "Nicodemus, you're kind of hopeless as far as understanding anything that I'm saying to you." But Jesus doesn't leave him hanging. In this chapter. Uh, well, in fact, before I get to that, I, I just want to give you some other scriptures that uh, that lay out for you the crisis in which Nicodemus finds himself and in which humanity is engaged. Romans eight verses five to eight it says, "For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh; but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit." Well, we've seen that Nicodemus is not even able to enter. realm of spiritual discourse, even though he's a teacher in Israel. To to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this includes righteous religious Pharisees. It includes um, dirty sinners on the street. It includes Everyone who is in the flesh. In, that, in other words, anyone who does not have a new heart. Okay. Uh, another passage, and you might be familiar with this, is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, where the Apostle Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, or does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. What can't Nicodemus do? He can't receive. Why? Because they are folly to him. How can these things be? Can a man enter into his mother's womb again? They're folly to him. Uh, because they're folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The person, the spiritual person, judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understand, understood the mind of the Lord as so as to instruct him? It's a rhetorical question. So who has understood the mind of the Lord? Here's who. But we. We have the mind of Christ. So when Jesus says, we testify about what we know, he's not only talking about himself and the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's talking about everyone who is born of the Spirit and who has the mind of Christ. We speak of what we know. And if you can't speak of your faith as something you know, if you can't speak of Jesus as someone you know, and who you know knows you then your faith has no actual object your faith is is just something kind of floating around this nebulous concept of faith because it doesn't have a real object so there is a contrast here and really the contrast is between the natural man or the natural person and the spiritual person between one who is of the flesh and one who is in the spirit of the spirit so, that's an awful place where Nicodemus finds himself. And I'm sure he's asking in his mind, how do I get from where I am to where I need to be? I, I can't crawl back into my mother and be born again. He, he's talking about being born again, but I have no idea. And of being, being born again by the Spirit of God and the wind blowing, it's just not making any sense. Jesus is about to reveal himself. In verse uh, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the theme of John chapter one: the incarnation of Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. John 14, the Word, John 1, 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All of the doctrine that Jesus has laid out is secondary to the actual encounter and the actual faith placed in Jesus himself, in the Son of God. Basically, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're a man. You're a sinful man. you're so earthbound that there's no way you're going to understand heavenly things so this is what I did I descended from heaven and I dwelt among you I came to my own people and my own people did not receive me but whoever to all who do receive me who believe on my name, I give the right to become child of God. He doesn't say all of that. But Nicodemus, um, he, he teaches more and more on this later on. But you, you can see here that the most important aspect in the conversion of sinners is an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Nicodemus is trying to be born again on his own, if he's thinking that it's just a matter of another level of spiritual reform, it's not going to happen. God descended to earth. God, in his descent to earth in Jesus Christ, brought to man knowledge that man could never have. On his own. And here he is speaking to Nicodemus. And here he is, even now, though not physically present, speaking to us through his words. You want to know heavenly things? I've come down from heaven to bring you those heavenly things. So Christ is revealed... No one ascends into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And this is, I think, the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus uses the phrase, the Son of Man, to describe himself. But we find evidence later on that Jesus really is talking about himself. If we look briefly at John chapter 9, verses 32 through 37, uh, listen to this. Uh, this is where a man who has been blind since birth has been healed. and The, the Pharisees have been sparring with him and, and they're, they're saying he's sinful and that he's got no right to say anything to them and all kinds of stuff. But just listen to this and it's quite revealing. And here, here's the man He's speaking to the, uh, the temple, uh, to, the, to the Jews. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? These are the same classes as Nicodemus. Would you teach us? And they said, they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe on him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. <laughs> Interesting, you saying that to a man that was blind just just uh, hours ago. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Um, I didn't write it down, but I can't re- resist going to there. Uh, let's go to let's go to John chapter nine, and I want to read the rest of that exchange there. It's kind of sort of jumping to the end of the mystery uh, rather than being patient to get there, but I have to read it because I don't want to forget it. Um, John chapter 9, and let's look at uh, verse 38. You have seen him, and he is speaking to you. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? See, Nicodemus, right now, he's still blind. He's still blind. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Anyway, so Jesus, his whole thing, what he's all about, is helping people who cannot see, to see. And this is exactly what he's doing with Nicodemus. Alright, so that is the, uh, I'm losing my place here, that is the Christ Revealed. Now we get to the core of the whole passage here. And that is the cross. The cross represented. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What an odd, odd passage for Jesus to use on himself. Of course, we think right away, well, what does Jesus have in common with the serpent? The serpent is... Kind of etched in all of our cultural memories in every culture in the world. The serpent typically is conniving, it's associated with the fall and with the temptation and with sin in the garden. And Jesus says, just the way Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man, that's me, must be lifted up. Is Jesus saying that he's got some affinity with with Satan? There's actually people who teach that Jesus became Satan on the cross, and they're professing evangelical believers. Well, it's not at all what it says. This is, however, it is the cross represents. In order to understand what's going on, let's go back to that passage in, in Numbers, chapter 21. Read it again, and then we'll break this down a little bit why Jesus uses this particular um, image to help Nicodemus understand the new birth. From Mount Hor, Numbers 21, verse 4, from Mount Hor they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpent from us." serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, that everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So you have here the people that are sitting. And they're complaining. Why are they complaining? They're saying that God's... Provision is insufficient. Essentially, they're accusing God of being stingy, selfish. You know, you can read back right before that; they've just been given the victory over several cities, and they've gone in and they've completely destroyed them. So the Lord's with them. But I'd like you to think back to the Garden of Eden. People are given every green plant out of the, every, everything that grows in the garden and everything that produces fruit. It's all for them. And they have their choice of everything that is there. The serpent comes along. And uh, he's hanging around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says to Eve, "Did the Lord say that, uh, has he really said that you're not supposed to eat the fruit of this tree? Well, you know the story. We're not to eat it, she says. Neither shall you touch it, which the Lord never said. But, you know, she begins rationalizing and trying to defend God because Satan is casting God in a bad light, in a stingy light, in a selfish light. And so he finally persuades Eve to take the fruit. And she gives it to her husband. And the the line of his reasoning is it's, it's good, nice to look at. It's... The good for food, and it's to be desired for gaining wisdom. In other words, all these things that God has withheld from you, you can have these things, and He's teaching Eve to be um, to be dissatisfied with the provision and the sustenance that has been given to them by God. So there's a, there's a bit of a parallel. There. So in this case, the serpent is the devil, of course, and he tempts him. But here in the desert, God sends serpents. He sends judgment in the form of fiery serpents. I don't know what fiery serpents are, but it probably has to do with the venom and the sting as that venom enters the body and the way that the way that it burns and the way that it consumes. So God sends these fiery serpents and it's important that God sent them. And everybody who is bitten by those serpents dies. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. It was in the garden, it was when they sinned in the desert. But Jesus, he speaks of Moses lifting the serpent up. And you can picture the scene. These people are writhing in agony. Some of them perhaps have not been bitten yet. And they see their relatives um, dying. And and, and some have already died. And others are just in those paroxysms of of death. And they come to Moses and say, Lord, our Moses, we've sinned we sinned against God. We've sinned against you. Pray to God. So that he will spare us. And so God gives Moses a command. Make a serpent. Make a fiery serpent. Out of brass. Put it up on a pole. Everyone who looks at that serpent will live. Everyone who looks at the very justice... Of God. Everyone who looks at the object that He used to bring about destruction. Everybody who looks upon their own sin and what their own sin has brought. Everyone who lifts their eyes and looks upon this will be spared and will live. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57. Pardon me, wrong verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians five, twenty and 21. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These people were looking at their sin. They were looking at the epitome of the wrath of God. And this was lifted up. This was highlighted for them to see. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What were they looking at? They were looking at the curse upon Paul. For it is written, Cursed is every one who hangs on a tree. If I had to call the cross, if I had to make a connection between the cross and one of those trees in the garden. Though it wouldn't be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree of life. This was the entrance back into the garden. The garden was guarded by seraphim when Adam and Eve were cast out. And they couldn't get back in because they might eat of that tree of life. The only way back to life, the only way back to peace with God, is through the Lamb of God who hung upon a tree. The Lamb of God who became sin for us, who knew no sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. It's still odd to me That Jesus makes this connection with the serpent. But here's here's what I'd like you to understand. This isn't a direct analogy with Jesus and the serpent. This is an overthrowing of the judgment of sin and death. It is the heel of the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. It is a reversal Of the wages of sin and death. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so look and live. Look and live. Look. See. Through the eyes of faith. See the Son of God. Upon the cross. And you will live. I'm going to read from uh, uh, some of the memoirs of Charles Spurgeon and I happened to read one of John Piper's sermons as I was preparing and this isn't his sermon so don't worry I haven't lifted it but he quoted um, he quoted Charles Spurgeon's about his conversion and I, I would like you to hear this uh, it's, it's so moving and it's so relevant to this text Uh Well you'll you'll see what I mean when I read it. Charles Spurgeon says, Sometimes I think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Saturday morning or one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel there may have been a dozen or fifteen people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose at last a very thin looking man a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort went up to the pulpit to preach he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say the text was look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth from isaiah 45:22 he did not even pronounce the words rightly but that did not matter there was i thought a glimpse of hope for me in that text The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. While a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be a thousand... Uh, Worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some of you look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. Remember, the gospel is a command, it's not a suggestion. When Jesus says, Look to me, when it says, Come to me, it's a command. Look to Christ. The text says, Look to me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way Look unto me. I'm sweating in great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me. uh, Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me. See, it's Jesus Christ himself whom we must look. When we're sharing the gospel, we fail unless we bring people to Jesus, until we portray before them him crucified for sin. When he had gone out, this is back to the Spurgeon again, when he had gone out, gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. He looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow struck right home, he continued, and you'll always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death. If you don't obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else, he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when a brazen serpent was lifted up. The people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and some of the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ in simple faith which looks alone to Him. And now I can say, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, Thy flowing wound supply, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. You see, we've seen, we've seen the crisis restated We've seen the Christ revealed. We've seen the cross represented. And now we see the curse reversed. If I can find my paper. Um, and the curse reversed is reversed in this that whoever believes, whoever looks, whoever looks wins whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 54 through 57 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O great, or death, O death, where is your sting? Those serpents, the wages of sin, the penalty of sin No more sting. That curse is reversed in Jesus Christ. It's not the serpent on the cross anymore. It's the Lamb of God on the cross. Crushing the serpent's head. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is not done in his sermon to Nicodemus. We'll continue and we will actually get to that mountaintop. I think Nicodemus is ready to hear now John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father I thank you I thank you for putting this encounter in the scriptures so that Every generation of saints has been able to read it. And Lord, that you have used this passage to open many blind eyes. Lord, I thank you that these things were written, that we might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that believing we might have life through his name. I pray, Lord, that if we already believe that you would increase our faith through what we've heard, and if we would do If we do not believe, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring these words and blow these words as a wind into our hearts, that we might receive them, that we might look and live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe uh, Kelly and Curtis are going to help with communion. (suss) 고맙습니다. <suss>